Hello and welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am positively splendid. Um, I don't really have anything of note this week, do you? No, nothing of note, so that's all good, and we can get straight into this uh, topic this week. So this week we're talking about testosterone-boosting supplements, or testosterone-slash-androgen-augmenting supplements, you could say. Um, and this is a popular area of supplementation uh just even generally the phrase testosterone boosting is very popular people are often interested in different types of interventions that could boost their testosterone and generally this is line in line with um exploiting the benefits of testosterone on muscle and strength let's say sometimes it might be related to libido or your sense of kind of vitality energy levels but a lot of the time it comes back to this idea that if I increase my testosterone, that'll boost my results in the gym and I'll build more muscle and strength. So that's where we see this a lot, but there are areas beyond just the fitness industry where people might be interested in testosterone boosting for, you know, feeling a bit more aggressive, a bit more assertive, getting some of those psychological benefits. So it's not just muscle building and strength, um, but there are some of the reasons that people would consider this to be an area of supplementation that would be of interest. Yeah, it's also one of those areas that it sounds like it's just a, a good thing. Being like, oh, testosterone is what makes me like manly, masculine or whatever. So I clearly want more of that. More is clearly better. And obviously you see people, if you're in the gym, for example, you see people who are on testosterone, you're like, wow, they get fucking phenomenal results, way quicker results. They're getting stronger, building more muscle, getting faster, fitter, et cetera, in half the time. It would take me, right? Um, so you can you can see that there's a benefit there from testosterone supplementation. And then also you hear people in like the entrepreneurial world or that more like, we'll call it hormone optimization world, I suppose. They're like, oh, you need to get your testosterone checked. You need to get your testosterone dialed in so that you can have a fulfilling life. You know, basically you're you're a beta male if you don't have super high levels of testosterone you know like that's that's kind of the prevailing wisdom right so you can understand and especially if you are a, a younger guy and you're kind of going oh well look all these guys seem to be you know really pushing the benefits of testosterone they're like saying oh it's really good for this it's good for motivation it's good for cognition it's good for muscle building it's good for performance it's good for x y z everything right um and they never talk about any negatives naturally enough um so you're like oh I need to make sure that my testosterone is as high as possible. That's that's the goal, right? Now, you might be a teenager, younger man in your 20s, maybe even late 20s. You might be thinking, yeah, I need to, I need to get my testosterone higher, but you're also not necessarily willing or able in some cases, or it's not necessary to go on something like a testosterone replacement therapy. Like you're not going to go to the doctor and go, I think I have low testosterone, put me on you know, T or T. That's not necessarily what a lot of people are doing. Now, obviously some people do, and that's, you know, a medical requirement in some cases. And sometimes it's not a medical requirement. It's a, it's a, a superficial medical requirement. Like I know a lot of, again, hormone optimization doctors that will see like a, a mid range testosterone level, like it's, you know, whatever in the 500s. And they're like, yeah, 500 nanograms per deciliter. Um, they're like, yeah, that needs to be, you know, medicated. You need to be up the top end. You need to be at the top of the reference range for testosterone or, you know, 
just not good enough. Um, so it's very understandable why people get enthusiastic, we'll say, about testosterone-boosting supplements, right? But do they even fucking work? That's the question. And if they do, like, what are we actually influencing by using them, right? So we have a few things to go through, first of all, with regards to testosterone, before we can then get into like actual supplements. So Gary, where do we start with this? Yeah, so I'll, I'll introduce a little bit, a few things that you should know about testosterone and testosterone levels before we actually discuss the supplements themselves. And I suppose the first thing that we need to understand before we get to supplementation is that when you're considering a supplement, it's supposed to serve a purpose. And that purpose could be the provision of a substrate that's in short supply that could increase the synthesis of something else, such as testosterone. So we could say that, right, if we increase the substrates and we don't have enough, then that might increase testosterone uh, synthesis. So that's going to be of relevance to some of the supplements we discuss. It's also the case that if you are talking about testosterone itself, then you'd want it to be low or lower than you know, you'd consider to be optimal if you're going to try to increase it. Because if it's already high, then generally what we see in, in human biology is that you're not really going to increase synthesis further by just providing more substrate for testosterone synthesis. Okay, so this is an important starting point that if you're thinking about supplementation, there should generally be some sort of deficit that you're trying to correct. And if there's not, the return is going to be um, pretty subtle, okay? So testosterone synthesis 101, right? So testosterone is what we refer to as a steroid hormone. And as with all steroid hormones, so for example, estrogen is a steroid hormone, progesterone, cortisol, etc. Cholesterol is the initial substrate, okay? So all of these steroid hormones are derived from that first step of cholesterol. And that cholesterol can come from cholesterol that has come through the diet, or it can be synthesized endogenously. And this is actually something that's quite important because what we often see are claims related to cholesterol in the diet related to hormone levels. So for example, people will say that, oh, you don't want to reduce your saturated fat because saturated fat increases cholesterol and cholesterol boosts hormone production. But the important thing here is that when you look at um, endocrine glands like the testes, the ovaries, the adrenals, we see that steroid hormone production and the, so the that substrate cholesterol that comes into the cell to allow for that synthesis actually comes from HDL, high-density lipoprotein, rather than LDL, low-density lipoprotein. And that's really important because the increase in so-called cholesterol, or LDL is what we're actually talking about, the lipoprotein itself, increase in concentration of that within your blood in response to a high-saturated fat diet or a ketogenic diet or these types of things is... So you get that increase in LDL, and that's not necessarily increasing the delivery of uh, cholesterol and thus the increase in hormone synthesis. So you can't just, you know, bump up your LDL and expect that to have a positive effect on cholesterol synthesis. Rather, we see that HDL plays an important role. And then the other component of that is endogenous cholesterol synthesis. So we can produce our own cholesterol within our cells we don't need a super high level that's you know coming through so that's a really important point because the saturated fat and high fat diet claim related to hormones is pervasive it's been around forever and there is something to it in that if we have a super low fat diet and we have a deficiency in fat soluble vitamins and that type of thing 
that could potentially have um, ill effects on hormone production. But for the most part, if someone has a generally adequate diet, increasing fat content further, increasing cholesterol content further, just isn't going to be bolstering your testosterone. Okay, so that's a really important point here. Now, the testosterone that we talk about is produced primarily in the testes in men in the Leydig cells, and then in females in the ovaries. Okay. And then we've also got small amounts produced in the adrenals in both. Now, there are three major androgens that we'll be touching on today. So one of the androgens is, of course, testosterone, and that's the most important one, but also uh, dihydroepiandrosterone, which is DHEA, and dihydrotestosterone, which is DHT. So there are two other important um, androgens, and there are two others as well, but they're not as important. Okay, so there are three important for today. It's DHEA, testosterone, or T, and then DHT, or dihydrotestosterone. Now, DHEA is a precursor to, tes to testosterone. So you get DHEA from the conversion of the progestogens to uh, the androgen class of steroid hormones. So the DHEA is a precursor, and then you have two enzymes between DHEA and testosterone. And then testosterone is converted to dihydrotestosterone via 5-alpha reductase. And the re only reason I mention that enzyme is because you will actually come across it with drugs such as 5-alpha reductase inhibitors like finasteride, because the idea there is that you're reducing the activity of that enzyme. And by reducing the activity of that enzyme, you get reduced DHT production. And DHT is the androgen that binds to your hair follicles and leads to uh, male pattern baldness, okay? There are other physiological effects there as well, but they're your major um, androgens to be aware of, DHEA, testosterone, and DHT. Now, testosterone is really what we're focused on in this conversation. And the concentration of testosterone is one of the greatest physiological differences between the sexes, okay? It's a night and day difference, very, very large. And the normal ranges in males are 300 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. The normal range varies. You'll see this in different textbooks, different papers, different guidelines, different laboratories, but more or less 300 to 1,000 nanograms per deciliter or 10 to 35 nan nanomoles per liter. For I'm females... Just, just that, I want yeah. to say, like, that range is just an average, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not perfect. Like we know individuals that are higher than that naturally. I actually think Gary, you have had a measurement before of like 35.4 nanomoles. I think it was yeah, above the normal range. I have zero signs of it. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, he has absolutely no muscle whatsoever. <laughs> the skinniest, smallest person I've ever seen. Right. But I, the reason I bring that up is because we tend to get really hyper-focused on the numbers and go, Oh, <clears throat> I got a 600 nanograms per deciliter. Like obviously that, that's more of an American measurement system. We use nanomoles per liter. I actually don't like nanomoles per liter, uh, but anyway, it just it's easier, I think, because most people say it in the nanograms per deciliter uh, variation. But either way, like it's not actually the amount that dictates everything. There's so many other factors that come into play when we're talking about, say, muscle building, for example, such as androgen receptor density like how many yeah. the, like that testosterone has to bind to something to have an effect now there are other effects like genomic effects and stuff like it gets through the cell etc there's there's other things it's not entirely just like actually binding to the receptor right and um, but you could have let's just say gary let's explain why is gary so skinny he has high testosterone surely he should be putting on muscle like nobody's business but gary could have a 
you know, a lower amount of androgen receptor. So even though his testosterone levels are high, they're not really getting or doing what they need to do, right? But there's other things that come into play, such as sex hormone binding globulin. Like he could have a high level of testosterone, but it's all bound, we'll say, to sex hormone binding globulin. Like it is obviously bound to albumin as well, because just like cholesterol needs a transporter around the bloodstream, so does testosterone because it's that kind of lipid, more fatty type substance, right? Um, so some of it can be transported around the bloodstream in free testosterone. That's, you know, an aside. Um, but he could have high sex hormone binding globulin, right? He could also have other things going on, such as, you know, just differences in the actual shape of the androgen receptor. Like he could have gene mutations where even though there's enough androgen receptor and there's enough testosterone, the actual signaling as a result of that is not quite the same as if you had a different, like the quote unquote normal version of the androgen receptor. And this also, the reason I bring this up is because people really focus on the amount and fail to realize that there's so much extra that goes into this. Like, this is why you see some bodybuilders, they'll be like, oh, I only take a low dose of testosterone. And you're looking at them going, there's no way, man, you put on so much muscle. Everyone else in your your class or your height class or weight class or whatever, they're using twice as much as you, but they could just have different polymorphisms, different gene mutations that allow that testosterone to be more effective for them, right? That particular dose of testosterone, right? So there's lots going on here. It's not just the total level. Anyway, sorry for interrupting you, Gary. I know you were explaining the differences between male and female testosterone levels. Yeah, no worries. So as I said, let's just, uh, let's go with the nanograms for deciliter for a moment. So 300 to 1000 in males, and then in females, you're looking at 15 to 70 nanograms per deciliter. Okay, so really, really large difference. You know, if we take the, the bottom end of the range there, 300 versus 15, you're looking at a factor of 20x. Okay, so that's very large. And if you were to compare the bottom end of the female range, the top end of the male male range, then you're looking at like 60 plus x of uh, a difference between uh, testosterone levels. So this obviously accounts for some of the large differences within the sexes. And it's also one of the reasons that testosterone suppression is such such an important uh, topic when discussing, for example, transgender athletes in sports. So you see the testosterone suppression is kind of a key area of debate there because even when you set the threshold of testosterone suppression for um, transgender athletes, the for male to female what you see there is that the threshold is still actually still well above the normal female range so they're actually maintaining well above normal female levels of testosterone and that testosterone has it exhi exhibited its effects throughout the person's lifespan okay so that's the reason it's so important really is that there's actually such a stark difference between males and females and you can think in an example like that um or in some of the other disorders of sexual development that all other variables like the androgen receptor density, as Patty, Patty said, or androgen um, sensitivity, the person that, that the sensitivity that the receptor has to the androgen uh, binding, these are all variables that modify the level of testosterone. So you can, you, there are certain conditions where people have um, androgen insensitivity. So they may have normal levels of testosterone, but they are not getting any of the benefits of them or of androgens, androgens in general because of this insensitivity. So just sorry to, to further interrupt with there. Oh, like there are, again, it's not just like something to do with like transgenderism or anything like this does also apply to individuals like say Castor Semenya is a, a classic yeah. case 
as an individual who is intersex. So as far as I'm aware, not her doctor, obviously, um, she has testicles. They're internal testicles, but she is female presenting. She grew up as a female for all intents and purposes. She is a female, but she does actually have testicles. So she does actually produce testosterone. So for her, she has to bring her testosterone levels down to the quote unquote female levels. Like she has to take androgen, what's what's the term? Androgen deprivation therapy? What's it called? Yeah. No. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, basically, she has to bring her testosterone levels down to be within the female level, right? Um, so it is a, a very interesting area. And it is something that I think in the next few years, we're really going to parse out the exact, like, oh, if you are suppressed in testosterone, like you've got testosterone suppression therapy, that's what it's called. Um, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> like we could be, we will be able to parse out in the future, in the next few years, probably because it is becoming more and more of a hot topic issue. Um, like, oh, you have to be on testosterone suppression, for example, before the teen years, because we know there's a lot of bone building, muscle building, androgenic effects. Like that's what happens when you're going through uh, puberty. Like you're, you're, you're getting all these, uh, masculinizing or feminizing effects during puberty, right? As a result of the different milieu of hormones that you are exposed to, right? So it might be a case of, oh, well, if you go on testosterone suppression therapy when you're 12, then you can compete in female sports. Whereas if you go on it later in life, you have already got all the adaptations, well, not all of them, but a lot of the adaptations from that androgenic signaling, right? So maybe then it's a case of, well, okay, you have to be at a quote unquote, female level for five years, 10 years, whatever. Again, I think that stuff will really be parsed out over the next couple of years so that we can have a more nuanced view of this question. But as related to this discussion, it brings up a really important point in terms of comparing male and female uh, testosterone levels. There is a massive difference, right? There is a massive difference in the amount of testosterone a woman has and the amount of testosterone a man has. But what's also interesting is that's also kind of mirrored in terms of estrogen, uh, in terms of there's a massive dis- difference in terms of how much estrogen a man is exposed to versus how much estrogen a woman is exposed to. But what is interesting here, and the reason I bring it up is that women generally, it's not always the case, uh, have more testosterone than they have estrogen, right? Yeah. So we can think of testosterone as the the kind of quote unquote life molecule. Like that's that's the the hormone that's the hormone that's giving you vitality here now it's at a baseline i'm not saying more of it gives you more vitality or anything like that i'm just saying like that's by this kind of discussion it's the the baseline after that estrogen is actually at a much lower level now that also brings up a more important point as it relates to this discussion because it does potentially influence your dietary practices your lifestyle practices and then also obviously in this context your supplement practices because estrogen is a more potent hormone. I mean, you need less of a dose to get more of an effect, right? So even though in women, testosterone levels are higher than estrogen levels as a quantity, right? That estrogen is more effective at a lower dose, more potent at that lower dose, right? And the reason that's important for this discussion is that estrogen plays a key role in the synthesis of testosterone. And the key role that it plays is it provides, we'll call it negative feedback to the HPTA axis to say, oh, we have enough testosterone. And what happens in this case is like, say as a man, you're producing testosterone. Some of that testosterone is going to be transformed. We'll just put it like that into estrogen, right? So it's going to be aromatized 
into estrogen, right? Now, if you are aromatizing at a high level, right, you've got a lot of aromatase uh, enzyme activity. So a lot of the testosterone you produce is going to estrogen. Your body then takes that signal and says, well, we have a lot of estrogen, right? So we don't need to produce as much testosterone. A lot of the testosterone production is going towards estrogen. So we don't want to have this high level of estrogen. So we're going to dial it back. Now, the important with well, a few key points here is a lot of that aromatase activity does actually happen in adipose tissue. So fat tissue. So if you are someone who has more fatty tissue, you're more likely to convert to testosterone that you do create. You're more likely to convert that into uh, estrogen, right? Or there's a, a higher likelihood of that occurring, right? And um, there are, again, genetics, etc., that play into this. Um, but it brings up a key point where you could be supplementing to improve your testosterone and yeah, it might even work, but because you're overweight, you're carrying too much fat mass, you're now seeing more of that testosterone convert into estrogen. And that's now providing a negative feedback and your testosterone is then lowered. Like I hate this line of thought, but we kind of had to get to the root cause of why your testosterone isn't high in the first place, why it isn't in an optimal level or at an optimal level in the first place? Is it your diet, your lifestyle, your training practices that are not on point? Because they have to be squared away if we actually want to have productive testosterone levels. Because again, if we did have a supplement or whatever that could boost your testosterone, it's kind of meaningless if you're gonna convert all that testosterone into estrogen. And as a result, you're going to reduce your testosterone production anyway, right? But also as a kind of counterpoint, some supplements use this uh, estrogen signaling as a way to modulate testosterone. So they'll have so you'll have supplements that are aimed at reducing estrogen levels or effectively like clearing estrogen out of the system a little bit more quickly or faster um, or more effectively, I should say. Um, and as a result, the hope would be that you now get less of that negative feedback from estrogen. And as a result, your body goes, oh, well, we can produce more testosterone because none of it's going towards estrogen. And I actually want some estrogen because we don't want to think of estrogen as a bad thing. We do need estrogen. It's key for muscle building. It's key for cognitive health. It's key for, you know, cardiovascular health. There's many, many uh, benefits to estrogen. So we don't want to just, you know, artificially or whatever, suppress it down to really low levels in the hope that we're going to boost testosterone levels. That's, that's ultimately not a benefit, but if we can modulate estrogen, we could potentially then modulate testosterone. At least that's the argument uh, when it comes to some of these supplements. Yeah. And just a, a final point there, just because I think, I just think understanding the physiology of all this is actually really important. And from a, when you, when you think about that question then, okay, what if we take it to the extreme where someone's taking exogenous testosterone, like you're a bodybuilder and you're injecting testosterone, what happens then? And what happens then is again, a classic example of this negative feedback. So you've got a super high level of testosterone now. And importantly, like we're not talking about like 200 nanograms per deciliter over the normal range. Like that's a really important point when it comes to understanding the effects of steroids versus just a small change in the normal range. You're talking about a multiple factors of a difference between the normal range and the level that someone is taking when they're injecting testosterone. And what ends up happening is your body effectively senses that we've got a really high level of testosterone. So what does it do as a result? It shuts down testicular uh, testosterone production. Okay, we don't need to keep producing testosterone from the testes. And we get this maintenance then of a really high level of testosterone, but it's coming from the outside. The problem with that for um, is, is twofold, really two really important things. 
number one, you've got a really high level of testosterone and now you're getting huge estrogen production potentially as a result. So this is why you'll see a lot of bodybuilders taking drugs known as aromatase inhibitors because what they're trying to do is reduce the conversion of that testosterone to estrogen. When that's not the case, what you see is things like gynecomastia, for example. So this is where men taking testosterone will start to develop breast tissue. And you might be thinking, but they're taking male hormones. Why are they developing breast tissue? And the reason for that is because of this aromatase activity. And then the second really important thing Just is before that- Before you go on to that, this is why a lot of bodybuilders will basically try to dial their testosterone level up, like just pure testosterone, testosterone enantate, sipinate, whatever. They'll dial that, dial that up to as high a level as they can get away with without their estrogen levels getting out of hand. And then they'll use on top of that other drugs that potentially don't aromatize, don't convert to estrogen, or, you know, they may be signaled through a different pathway, like, you know, their DHT kind of derivatives. Um, they'll, they'll kind of switch the pathway so that they're not getting aromatase activity so that they can increase their total androgen exposure without increasing their total estrogen, right? Now, some people would argue that, oh, well, you can just keep increasing testosterone and just take something like a, an aromatase inhibitor. It depends on what kind of uh, strand of bodybuilding theory, we'll say, like enhanced bodybuilding theory you kind of ascribe to. Yes. And then you have another really key um, area of interest, and that would be in relation to fertility and sperm production. So when someone takes testosterone exogenously, again, we have that high level, but it's not coming from the testes. And the important thing is that the test, the testes, they don't get a lot of talk in, in physiology, but they're actually a really interesting organ. And it's kind of like the brain in that you've got this blood to testicular barrier. Okay. And you can imagine that's really important. You know, the brain, we've got the blood brain barrier. We don't want toxic substances to be getting into the brain. It's a really important organ and we want to protect it. So that exists within the brain. In the testicles, we've got the exact same thing or a, a similar thing, at least, in that we've got this layer of protection because clearly if this is responsible for reproduction of the species, we want to be really careful about what we let into the testes, okay? And for that reason, the intratesticular testosterone production is really important because we produce this uh, testosterone within the testes and then that acts on other cells within the testes to encourage sperm production and fertility and normal testicular physiology. This doesn't occur when you are taking testosterone exogenously. So it might be in your blood and you have high testosterone, but that doesn't mean you have high intratesticular testosterone. So you've got disrupted testicular um, physiology. And what ends up happening is you have testicular suppression. And this is the reason that people, when they take testosterone, will report shrinking of their testicles, okay? So they, they literally do get smaller because they're no longer serving their normal function. And that then means that you have reduced fertility, reduced sperm output, et cetera. In most cases, it restores when someone returns to normal physiology and they stop taking this testosterone. But I think those two elements of the testicles and adipose tissue aromatase activity are really important when understanding testosterone physiology. So just a final note there on the, the kind of physiology side of things as a, a pre-discussion would be the binding proteins, okay? So actually just as far as, sorry, before yeah, we go, go ahead. just in, because it'll round out the discussion of enhanced bodybuilding and testosterone and everything. This is also why uh, bodybuilders use stuff like selective estrogen receptor modulators to then potentially 
modulate their testosterone levels. Like it's very common for people to use a CIRM, a selective estrogen receptor modulator in a post cycle context. So they're getting some binding to the estrogen receptor, but it's not actually having the same effect as if estrogen was binding. So what happens then is we're getting that feedback to the hypothalamus, et cetera, to say, oh, well, we're not getting enough uh, estrogen stimulation. So we need to ramp up testosterone. Now there are some other effects of selection, selective estrogen receptor modulators. We don't necessarily need to go into it. Um, but again, this is just to round out the conversation, say that there are other things in this whole cascade, this whole pathway that bodybuilders use to modulate their testosterone. Now they usually use that in a post cycle context when they're trying to effectively, you know, quote unquote, restart their HPTA. Um, but some people, advocate using like serms in a uh, almost steroid cycle like way right they'll say oh well i just use a i use like a i don't know tamoxifen or something uh for eight weeks because it leads to higher levels of testosterone because you know it's binding to the estrogen receptor and it's signaling that i don't have enough estrogen then or i don't have enough estrogen signaling uh, so my body then produces higher levels of testosterone but again this is this is something that, well, yeah, you can argue in theory, this is potentially uh, uh, a mechanism to modulate testosterone. It really kind of ignores the entire picture because like Gary's going to go on to now, there are binding proteins as well that must be factored into the discussion. So if you now have binding proteins that you are increasing as a result of your practices, and as far as I'm aware, stuff like selective estrogen receptor modulators do increase stuff like sex hormone binding globulin, you now, yeah, you might, your testosterone might go up, but your free testosterone is now going down. So the amount that's actually active and bioavailable. Now that whole theory of like the bioavailable testosterone, like it has to be the testosterone that's not bound to sex hormone binding globulin. It's not perfect. Uh, it's not as well validated as it used to be or thought to be. Um, but there is still a an argument to be made that you do want that kind of one to, you know, maybe even 4% of your testosterone as free testosterone. Most people would argue that kind of 1.5 to 2% uh, as free testosterone is kind of the, the place you want to be. So we're not just talking about how much testosterone you have. We need to know how much free testosterone you have, which is unbound testosterone. And as Gary's going to get into now, there are some binding proteins that serve to bring that testosterone around the body. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as you said, we've got, right, we've got our testosterone. Okay. That's our first level of analysis. Then we want to know what do we have? What is that bound to? Okay. So normally the free testosterone, you know, somewhere between, as Patty said, it can vary from one to 4%. If you look at, you know, tighter ranges, generally 1.5 to 2% is what you'll see in a lot of textbooks as being the amount of testosterone that's normally free. And it's thought that this is of most biological relevance from a testosterone signaling perspective. As Paddy said, this is an area that is a lot of kind of controversy in the in the research as to, you know, the the is it just the free testosterone? What are the other um what's the other testosterone affecting um different uh biochemistry labs and stuff that vary in the way that they test this. So just appreciate that 
this isn't perfect, right? But it's thought to be the case that free testosterone is of most relevance. Now, the highest affinity binding protein is sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG. And this is what you see most often. And it's where most of testosterone is generally bound to SHBG, just over half in most cases. Again, that can vary. Okay. SHBG can vary in response to, you know, how much alcohol do you consume? You know, do you have, how's your metabolic health? Are you, do you have metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance? Um, are you on, do you have any other diseases, medications, et cetera? There's lots and lots of variables. If you look up any paper of variables affecting SHBG, you'll see a massive long list. Okay. So it can increase or decrease. And some of the supplements we'll discuss actually affect that as well. Then some of the other binding proteins would be albumin. Okay. Albumin is a protein that is consistently, it consistently comes up when it comes to protein binding in the blood. It's a really important one. And then you've got others such as cort corticosteroid binding globulin or CBG, and then orosomucoid or OROM, ORM. Okay. But the two really important ones really are SHBG and albumin. They're the ones that come up most often and SHBG in particular is of really great importance. So just remember free testosterone is not the same as your total level of testosterone, but it's the free testosterone that most likely has the greatest biological activity. Yeah. And this, this is actually probably the area that you have more control over in terms of different supplements and different things like that. Right. Because testosterone, a lot of that, the actual production of testosterone, there's so many factors that go into that. Now there's a lot of factors in terms of binding proteins as well and everything, but these seem to be way more, uh, altered, by your actual lifestyle effects. Like if you sleep enough, right? And then you train appropriately and you eat a good, generally calorie appropriate diet, like you're doing pretty much everything you can do to ensure that your testosterone levels are in a good place, right? You know, you don't necessarily need to make any huge tests or uh, changes to influence your testosterone levels. However, even if you're doing all those things, you could still be in a position where say your sex hormone, sex hormone binding globulin could be too high, right? For example, I know for me, for example, uh, high levels of coffee intake increases my sex hormone binding globulin, right? And caffeine does it as well, but coffee specifically seems to be for me, something that influences my sex hormone, sex hormone binding globulin, right? So there are different things like that's not going to be necessarily reflective in your testosterone levels. In fact, when I consume caffeine, my testosterone actually goes up, right? My testosterone levels are consistently higher when I've been consuming caffeine, but that might be a, a kind of a feedback loop because I have lower bioavailable or, or I should say rather free testosterone as a result of that caffeine influencing my sex hormone binding globulin, right? So as you can see, there's actually quite a lot that goes into this. And there are different things that would alter the affinity or the like uh, how much it wants to bind to testosterone, like different things like uh, divalent cations like zinc and calcium, they bind to sex hormone binding globulin. And as a result, they potentially modify its ability to pick up uh, testosterone or like bind to testosterone, which is an important point to make on testing with all this stuff, because you can get a measurement of SHBG, right? And you can get a measurement of testosterone, but very often what they'll do is they'll give you calculated free testosterone, right? But that isn't actually what your free testosterone is. They are making the assumption that SHBG and these other proteins have a certain binding affinity based on a normal population. And as a result of that, you now have 
they're like, well, let's just say it's 50% binding or whatever. You're like, okay, that would mean that you now have 2% free testosterone available. But that might not actually be the case. You could have, again, gene mutations in the SHBG uh, like protein or whatever, so that it has less binding affinity. Or you could be doing stuff like taking zinc or any of these different supplements, which we might be talking about now in a second, um, that then alter the ability or the affinity of that SHBG for testosterone. So if you were to get an actual measure of your free testosterone, it's likely going to be different than what is calculated as free testosterone, right? So the reason I say all this is because it gets very complicated very quickly. There's, it's not just a case of, oh, I'm going to modify this one single pathway. It's just this one little thing. And that's going to give me free, like higher testosterone, right? It might give you higher testosterone, but it might also increase your estrogen levels, which might have the negative feedback then lowering your testosterone, or it might alter your sex hormone binding globulin, et cetera, et cetera. There's such a like interconnected system here that having these like single, single point interventions usually don't work, right? Um, do you have anything else to say on that? No, I don't think so. I think we've, I think we've beaten that one. I think overall people should appreciate that generally there, there's a few, few things to just keep in mind, right? The binding globulins will vary. Free testosterone will vary. You might not always be able to tell exactly what that free testosterone will be. You also need to know that your individual response to a given level of testosterone is going to vary. You also need to know that these normal ranges, the effect of a given normal range is different for everyone, okay? And really, when you're thinking about low testosterone as being something of relevance, you need to actually have like associated symptoms or problems. You know, if you're just in the mid to maybe slightly below average range of testosterone, it's not really clear that there's anything that is really important there that you need to change, okay? And then, as we said, there are other androgens that play into this as well and that's going to form the basis of what we'll discuss now with the supplements yeah and what i want to say before we get into the supplements is ideally with all this stuff like don't just be guessing like people will do this all the time they're like oh i need to go on a testosterone boosting supplement and they have no idea what their testosterone is they have no idea what like normal like what it feels like to be a normal man like that quote-unquote normal man right and they're just kind of going oh yeah i would like my like uh, libido, libido, however you say that word, to be higher. So that must mean that I have low testosterone, right? And that's their entire criteria, right? So what we generally, well, generally we don't advocate getting comprehensive, excessive testing of various like blood markers or whatever. But if you are thinking, oh, well, I actually want to just improve my testosterone levels. I'm going to get some supplements. Like, first of all, save your money on the supplements and just get a testosterone test, like get a blood test, get a hormone panel. Like I generally do advocate uh, individuals getting a hormone panel at least once in their twenties. I think that's a good idea to get an idea, a snapshot of what it was like in your twenties for you to have, you know, quote unquote, good uh, hormone levels. And I think that's a good idea because then you have an idea, you have something to reference back to when you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, in case you ever do in future want to go on something like uh, testosterone replacement therapy or need to go on it. Like it could even be in your 30s, for example. And I don't know, you get a head injury or something and you're like, I need to go on TRT. And you don't know what your quote unquote normal levels were because you never got tested. So generally, I do think 
at least one point in your life, in your early 20s, mid 20s, I think is a good idea. Excessive testing every single quarter or every six months or a year, maybe less so. Um, but I think it is important if you are going to try to modulate your testosterone because you can save yourself a fuck ton of money if you just have naturally high testosterone levels. Like Gary, for you, for example, right? If I go, oh, Gary, you know, you don't really build muscle all that quickly. So uh, we're just going to, you know, put you on some testosterone boosting supplements. We didn't know that you actually just have naturally high testosterone, right? So look, what, what are the testosterone boosting supplements going to do? If anything, they're only potentially introducing uh, a negative into the system. Like what are they going to do now? Reduce your testosterone. They might increase your testosterone a little bit. Now you get negative feedback. Boom. Now all of a sudden your testosterone is actually lower, right? So we have to be really aware of what we're actually doing. And the only way we can do this is if we get testing, right? On that Would note, you- can I ask you a question as an expert? If my testosterone is already at the normal range or at top of the normal range, above the normal range, and I'm still making gains and these supplements won't work, technically means my only option left is to start take, start taking testosterone. I would uh, ingre- agree with you. I would definitely agree that uh, you as an individual Let's should <laughs> you should be on hormone replacement therapy because it would actually be phenomenal for our business if you were just jacked out of your mind. It would also be phenomenal for you as an individual because maybe then you would stop injuring yourself and <laughs> ripping things off the bone. Um, but for most normal people, no, I probably would not advocate no. <laughs> hormone replacement therapy, um, which yeah. does actually bring me to one of the points I want to make. And this is brings us into kind of the supplement stuff. Um, you don't really have a lot of control over a lot of this stuff. Like you do have some control, right? So what influences our testosterone levels? Well, first of all, genetics, right? It is what it is. You were just given those genetics. There's not much you can do about it. Unless we get CRISPR technology, change your genes. And even then we don't really know everything. It could go wrong. It could go right, right? Uh, other than that, your environment. And I mean, by environment, I mean the stuff that you can control in your environment. And then also just the general environment that you find yourself in. Like if you live in a city, maybe you do have lower testosterone levels because the air quality, for example, is lower, right? Different things like that, right? But a lot of the stuff in the environment, you do actually have control over. And I mentioned them earlier on. What are the things that you have control over? Your sleep. Now, again, you might not have full control over it, but the vast majority, like they're not the edge cases. The vast majority of people are not getting enough sleep. And it's not because, oh, I have stuff to do. It's not because I'm you know doing X, Y, Z. It's because they're staying up late at night watching TV or on their phone or whatever. Now, again, some people, shift workers, et cetera, like we need shift workers. It is what it is, right? But the vast majority of people are not getting enough sleep because they're up watching Netflix for half the night, right? Um, so that's what you have control over. In terms of the diet, you also have control by virtue of eating sufficient calories, and eating sufficient macronutrients. And we don't need to go into, oh, well, protein has this effect and carbohydrates have this effect. Like just follow a general well-balanced diet. We're not doing any low calorie diets. And then we're also not doing any low macronutrient diets because you very frequently see people do stuff like, oh, I'm on a carnivore diet. And they're like, oh, well, my testosterone level actually decreased. And then they'll make all these fucking mental gymnastics about why that's uh, actually beneficial, even though their SHBG is through the fucking roof now. Um, they're like, oh, well, actually my uh, androgen sensitivity goes up when I'm on a, a carnivore diet, which where's the fucking studies on that, right? But anyway, um, we don't want to do any of those kind of extreme things. Just eat enough protein, eat enough carbs, eat enough fats, right? That's your baseline. Of course, you as an individual can modify that based on the results that you see in your own blood work and how you feel, how you look, perform, etc. But in general, 
baseline, eat enough calories, eat enough of each of the macronutrients, right? And then only then would you even consider, or actually, sorry, I should say, there's also stress management that plays into this because stress does influence our HBTA, which is the whole system here that's, you know, leading to the synthesis, the triggering of this whole cascade testosterone synthesis um, and stress does play a role in there. So you need to be in a relatively you know, low stress environment, not too low. That's going to lead to actually lower testosterone because you need some struggle, some reason, I suppose you could say, for the production of testosterone. However, a lower stress environment is probably a little bit better in this case, and especially in the modern world where we were exposed to just constant stressors like all around the, the environment. Um, and they're like more chronic stressors rather than those kind of acute stressors. And um, so stress management plays a role. Then and only then would we even look at supplements. So if you were thinking, oh, these guys are going to give me the secret supplement. They're going to tell me to take X, Y, Z, and it's all just going to boost my testosterone. And you're sleeping five hours a night, right? And your diet is fucking shit. And your stress is through the fucking roof. It, it's going to do nothing. You're literally just pissing out money, right? So you need to get those things dialed in first and foremost before now i should say also exercise does play a role here it seems to be the case that most people that exercise have higher testosterone levels now this can be a little bit muddied or the water can be a little bit muddied with this because very often they'll measure the testosterone levels of athletes and they'll do it like post-competition or coming up to competition and they'll be like oh well these individuals actually have low testosterone levels and that can be caused by two things first of all a lot of them when it's coming up to the competition period, they're tapering off all the drugs that they were taking. So they're actually like, uh, like in testosterone insufficient territory and um, because they've been trained under the influence of drugs for the last however many years, whatever, right? Months, weeks, whatever, right? So that's one case. And then also they're probably doing a high level of training volume, like an excessive level of training volume. A lot of them are also trying to cut weight coming into a competition because there's a weight category or whatever. And as a result, their testosterone is lower, right? So those are the kind of things that we need to be looking at. In general, exercise, it seems to be beneficial for testosterone. Stress management seems to be beneficial for testosterone. A good quality diet seems to be <laughs> beneficial for testosterone. Good quality sleep seems to be beneficial for testosterone. That's the foundation. That's why we're doing these kind of foundational articles on the website, because you get those things squared away and everything else like 99% of the things that people talk about get squared away, right? Then and only then would we look at supplements. And then we have to also, before we get into the actual supplements we're going to discuss, because this is going to be relatively quick, right? If supplements actually worked, like significantly, people wouldn't be using steroids, right? It's a simple case. Like if these different supplements worked, why the fuck would you go on steroids? Why the fuck would you go through something that is, like say you're an athlete, if you're going, oh, well, the, the, these testosterone boosting supplements actually work and they provide a benefit, they get better results for us, et cetera, but they're not banned on the controlled substance list. So I'll just take these supplements rather than having to take these drugs, which are tested for and are potentially banned, right? Of course, that's a no brainer. Yet none of the athletes, none, are doing that right some of the supplements they might be doing they might be taking those because they're kind of more health supplements as we'll talk about in a second um but actual testosterone boosting supplements none of them are doing it and then we also have to look at okay well what are the studies let me see the studies in humans over a longer time period 
and they're all shit studies <laughs> or the vast majority of them, the vast majority of the studies are done in rats, you know? And it's like, this is not, this doesn't translate to humans. I should say rodents, not rats. It could be mice. Right. Um, so having said all that, Gary, what are the supplements? Yeah. I, I said to Patty before this episode that uh, we actually just need to pick topics over the next few weeks that where we have like solid recommendations for supplements because <laughs> unfortunately, as we anticipated at the start of the series, a lot of these areas of supplementation just don't work. And it's not even that they don't work. Sometimes you'll get these hints of efficacy in the research, but number one, so many of the studies are published in what we generally call predatory journals. So it will be like the Journal of Integrative Chinese Medicine or something, you know, and it's all these really low quality studies that have been published. You know, the, you've just so many simple things that would be basic quality control in supplementation studies. Like when you're measuring testosterone, at least standardize the time of day that you're going to measure it because it's susceptible to diurnal variation. It's just not even done in most of these studies. You know, it's, it's, so there's so much variation that makes it really difficult to assess whether or not these supplements have any effect. Okay. But anyway, with that said, there are classes of supplements that can be effective. The first ones would be your basic kind of vitamins and elemental minerals, which would be zinc, vitamin B3, magnesium, vitamin B6, and boron. With all of these, really what we see is that there can be testosterone boosting effects or testosterone restoring effects if there is a deficiency. Okay. And the deficiency or insufficiency comes at two levels here. Number one, if you have a deficiency or insufficiency in that specific vitamin or mineral. So for example, if you have low levels of zinc and you replace that zinc, then that increases the probability of testosterone uh, replacement or restoration. But the problem is if your testosterone is already normal or high, then that effect probably isn't going to be present. So there's actually two conditions there that you'd want to be aware of. Is it likely that I have low zinc, low magnesium, low vitamin D, D3, etc. And is my testosterone low? Okay. So if you had low testosterone and low vitamin D, then you would be totally in, in your right to say, okay, vitamin D supplementation here actually might be effective. And then you would retest and see, did it have the desired effect? Okay. So I wouldn't suggest that, you know, people just go out and supplement with these supplements without any evidence that they have a problem. Okay. Like for example, for me, I don't take vitamin D3 regularly, to be honest, even in Ireland when there hasn't been much sunlight, because I've had my vitamin D levels checked in um, January above the normal range, you know? So again, it really does depend on what your own needs are. And it reinforces the importance of, of some sort of testing. If you are going to be tr to try to be targeted with your supplementation. Now, with that said, you can also make you know, hypothetical changes. Like for example, let's say you're going through a period of time where, I don't know, maybe you have an illness and your appetite is severely impaired. You're struggling to eat your normal healthy diet or something, or maybe you're traveling and you're struggling to eat your normal healthy diet. And you would suspect that, okay, my magnesium is probably low because I'm not eating any green vegetables. My diet's really poor quality generally. My vitamin D intake is low because of my diet, et cetera. And because of the sunlight, then you can make a, a, a sound judgment and say, you know what, supplementation might actually be useful here. But if you don't have those suspicions of deficiency, demonstrated deficiency, and you don't have a testosterone problem in the first place, then you're kind of just supplementing for the sake of it, really. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And effectively what I would suggest for most people is just eat a well-balanced diet. That's yeah. generally going to take, take care of your zinc intake, generally going to take care of your vitamin B6 intake. And um, if you're eating enough, like sufficient amount of green vegetables, et cetera, you're probably going to get enough magnesium. Magnesium is one of those ones that, you know, a lot of people do find they struggle to get enough of. Most people just don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. And as a result, they just don't get enough magnesium. So we can make an argument that, okay, a little bit of magnesium at a baseline without any testing, you know, it's not going to be harmful, right? Same with vitamin D. Like if you're like, all right, I haven't got my blood levels tested, but I'm indoors all day. I don't really go outside a whole a whole bunch. I live in a Northern uh, hemisphere climate. We know that like 40% of the people in Northern hemisphere climates, uh, they're, you know, deficient or subclinically deficient in vitamin D. So taking something like a thousand IU to 2000 IU per day, not going to cause harm in most people. So you could do that like kind of prophylactically, especially during the, the winter months. Um, but other than that, oh, I suppose boron is one of those ones that a lot of people do actually struggle with because it's not really in the, the food supply all that much. It's like interstellar fucking dust. Um, but you can get it in like stuff like uh, Brazil nuts, I think it is. But maybe you want to supplement with that. In general, you can also get the vast majority of these things ticked off by eating a good, generally healthful diet and then having a multivitamin in the diet, in the mix, right? Even if it's not every single day, it's a couple of times per week. You're just like, yeah, I just take the multivitamin when I remember, maybe I'm taking it two, three times a week. It's just ensuring that you have a kind of a nutritional insurance, making sure helping you stay sufficient in these various uh, vitamins and minerals, right? Um, but that's like, eat a well-balanced diet and you're you're kind of looked after. You don't need to go out and buy any particular supplements. And if you're already eating a well-balanced diet, getting more of these different vitamins, minerals, whatever, they're not necessarily going to boost your testosterone further. Some of them might have a, a small effect. Like maybe you're in a, a normal range, like you're, you're maybe actually at the lower end of the normal range and you are getting sufficient amount of these uh, various vitamins and minerals. Maybe they do have the effect of just bringing it up a little bit, you know, maybe. But I, again, would be looking at why is your testosterone in the low normal range? And then also, is that even an issue? Maybe you have no symptoms of that. Maybe you have a great energy, great libido, great muscle building, great performance at 300 nanograms per deciliter. Like getting more testosterone isn't necessarily going to improve your life. Now, it might, it might be more beneficial for muscle building and various other parameters, but it's not necessarily like it's not a given that it's actually going to improve your life yes sir and then the next um areas of supplementation are i suppose in the kind of herbal class okay so a lot of herbal medicines here and, and things like that and i think the important caveat here because this is a recurring theme when you look at potential testosterone boosting supplements is that the reason there's interest in these supplements relationship to in relation to testosterone is because these supplements have demonstrated or been suspected to have um, certain aphrodisiac properties and so for example it might increase someone's sexual desire their you know sexual libido um other qualitative aspects of what their sexual experience is like their ability to get and sustain an, an erection etc and these are the, the the thing that's really messy about this area of supplementation is that libido and those related variables 
are so vague and difficult to quantify as in like a change in sexual libido is something that's really difficult to actually assess objectively. Like it's easy to assess testosterone. Well, not that easy, but relatively easy, but very difficult to assess, you know, libido. So there's very large, um, there's huge room for bias here in studies that are assessing things like sexual libido, because if someone is enrolled in a study and the sample um, is people who have low sexual libido and they want to improve it, then you want to make sure that the blinding is really rigorous and everything like that. And unfortunately, it's just it's just not great really in a lot of these studies. But that's the reason that people suspect testosterone to be of relevance here. And the, the reason I bring all that up is to say that testosterone and libido, like, is there a relationship? Yes, but a, a loose one. You know, it's not it's not just that higher testosterone equals greater sexual performance, longer erections, et cetera. There's other variables that come in there. For example, a supplement might impact um, blood flow to the penis. It might impact um, nitric oxide. And that is then the variable that leads to the change in erection rather than any change in testosterone. It could be a psychological effect. It could modify some of the other androgens that also have an impact on things like libido. Um, it could be a psychological effect. If you improve your mood and you're not as depressed or anxious, then that might be the effect that leads to uh, greater sustenance of your erection, etc. So all these variables exist north of just the testosterone itself. So make sure when you're looking at, at research on this topic or claims about this topic, that a change in libido or sexual function is not seen as being one with a change in testosterone because it's simply not okay just, just on that you see this all the time in bodybuilders they come off their testosterone cycle their hormone cycle and they're like oh i still have good libido so i must not be suppressed it's all good but that's not that, that's not the the marker of whether or not you are suppressed or if you are back to baseline and obviously as well there's a compounding variable here or confounding variable here i should say where a lot of these testosterone derivatives and different whatever they're taking uh, different androgens i should say that they're taking are oftentimes stay in the system for longer than oh i just stopped injecting on a thursday so by monday it's out of the system that's not how it works like you're probably at super, super physiological levels for two three four five six eight weeks 12 weeks in some cases with some of these drugs depending on the ester that's attached etc you know so Again, it's not just, oh, do I get boners? Oh, I get boners, so testosterone must be good. That's not that's not necessarily the case. Like again, you could have, Gary, let's say you, you have above average, above the reference range testosterone levels. Like you could still have like sexual dysfunction. You could still be like, oh, I just, I don't have any interest in sex. You know, like it, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, not like boost testosterone, boost sex drive. <laughs> you know, it doesn't go like that. There is, again, like you said, a loose correlation there. Like we would pre presume that if you did have higher testosterone levels, you would see some sort of increase. But again, it's not a one-to-one -one here. Um, but anyway, Gary, do you want to get into these different uh, supplements? Yeah, so some of these supplements would include uh, fenugreek. Um, that's one of interest. The evidence is relatively inconsistent. There's some positive trials, some negative trials. And again, it seems like there's you know, some bias in some of these trials that exist. So I wouldn't lean my hat on fenugreek. I would say that there's potentially some effect there on testosterone, uh, but it's not something I'm all that enthusiastic about. Very similar. Go ahead. I would give it, I would give it a meh. And what I would meh. also advocate a lot of people doing, uh, 
not just listening to our advice, not going like, oh, well, they said this, so I, I'm not going to take it or I am going to take it or I saw benefit to this or blah, blah, blah. Like examine.com, phenomenal resource for this kind of stuff, yes. right? They have guides in there as well that are like, you know, how to boost testosterone. It's like testosterone boosting supplements that give you all the, the most effective ones that show you the uh, magnitude, we'll say, of the evidence, whether it's like, this seems to boost an incredible amount. This is really effective versus like, this is like marginal, barely seen anything. And they'll have like mixed ones and everything. So you can go on to examine.com. You can type in any of these supplements that we're going to mention or any ones that we've already mentioned and go, what are the effects on testosterone specifically, right? I think examine does a phenomenal job of making that accessible and really easy to understand. So I would recommend using that as a resource on top of what we're going to tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. And then the second one's very similar, saw palmetto. Um, just doesn't seem to be effective, really. This is a below meh rating, I would say. <laughs> um, maybe just a ugh kind of rating. Uh, so no testosterone increases really observed here. Not something I'd be encouraging someone to supplement with. Um, some of the others here have a little bit more of, of, of an effect, potentially. One is forskillin, um, and this can have effects on testosterone. So it, it can raise testosterone. It has um, effects related to uh, adenylate cyclase, and as a result, increases in cyclic AMP which within the cell and it's hypothesized to have effects potentially on body composition as well there's some mixed evidence there um not didn't go too deep into the body composition side of things uh, but there may be some testosterone augmenting effects let's say would you agree yeah I I think this is a potential one right yeah. but it's only a potential one if it is that LH that luteinizing hormone signaling that is the issue like say for example that you're LH, your luteinizing hormone levels are just low, right? And that's the reason behind having low testosterone. Then yeah, maybe something like forskolin might be something that helps you as an individual, right? But if your LH levels are normal or high, getting them higher <laughs> isn't necessarily going to fix the, the low testosterone, if you even have low testosterone in that cage. And then you also have to be going, okay, well, why are my luteinizing or why is my luteinizing hormone higher than normal like what's going on there is there something else i'm getting negative feedback like what like what's going on right so again it's there's there's potential here if lh is the issue okay maybe we could have bring force colon in right but also we have to remember that this kind of cyclic amp there are off-target effects like that there's so many other things that it impacts it's not like it just goes oh it's this one thing that's the a one-to-one -one relationship here you take some force colon your lh goes up that's it there are some other effects. We won't get them in, into them here, but it does have a lot of quote unquote off target effects. Yes. And LH or luteinizing hormone. So that's, that's going to be one of the gonadotropes. Okay. So this is one of the hormones, um, LH and FSH that are released uh, from the pituitary gland to then act on the testes for that testosterone production. And the reason I mentioned that point because is because one of the things you'll see as a cause of low testosterone is what's referred to as hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism. And what that means is that the hypogonadism or low testosterone or testicular function is secondary to a problem higher up the chain related to the release of those um, gonadotrophs, LH and FSH. So this is this can result from, for example, like chronic dieting, extreme exercise stress. So it's, it's sort of the male equivalent of the female version of hypothalamic amenorrhea. So you'll hear of women discussing long-term um, dieting, causing things like the loss of their normal menstrual cycle. And this kind of similar thing can occur in men. So if you're 
dieting long-term, you have huge exercise stress, you're an endurance athlete training 40 hours a week, you know, you can end up in this position where you have that hypogonadotrophic effect. So there's potential there that um, something like this might be of more use there. Now, you don't have this level of stratification in the research testing this on loads of different populations, but um, from a mechanistic hypothesis, th there could be uh, something to that, okay? Um, and I suppose just a, a quick note on that as well is that we haven't mentioned it yet, but if you have low testosterone, like there could be other medical reasons. So that's actually a really important caveat is that like I mentioned the hypogonadotrophic hypogonadism, you can have hypergonadotrophic hypogonadism. You can have many, many other problems that could lead to uh, lowers or low or suppressed testosterone. So you'd want to actually get that sorted with a medical professional as well before you just jump down the line of all these supplements okay so uh that's and a lot of those a lot of the actual medical stuff is not even related or you wouldn't necessarily think it's related to like testosterone production like you might go oh this person has i don't know something like testicle testicular torsion right they're like oh that's we can we can be like all right maybe that's going to lead to uh you know testosterone deficits or you know they have some uh you know blunt force trauma to the testicles we're like okay so that that all makes sense but you could literally have had a concussion, a head injury. Yeah. And that is what's actually causing your low testosterone, right? Like there's such a cascade from, well, it's more than just this, from the brain down to the testicles that there's so many points that could go wrong along that route, right? That it's not just, oh, well, there's some effect of my testosterone, some effect on my testicles, and that's why I have low testosterone. There's way more to it. Yeah, and there's actually a perfect example within the fitness industry, which is um, Steve Hall of uh, Revive Stronger. So he's spoken openly about this, and it's actually a great story. It's the reason that his business is called um, Revive Stronger, and it's because he was he was in a car crash, I believe, or he had some sort of trauma, had a head injury, and actually ended up in a position where he required testosterone replacement therapy i think it was just a testosterone cream that he used for a period of time but it was actually secondary to the head injury so if you have trauma to the head and that impacts your pituitary gland or your hypothalamus then that can indeed uh, reduce testosterone production so uh, that's definitely something that that could be of relevance to some people you can also get you know certain um tumors and things like that within the brain that could impact this i know i've had a couple of people message me in the past in relation to uh, pituitary tumors that they've had um, and that that can absolutely have an effect here so uh, yeah there's a whole cascade from the brain all the way down and it's not just testicles now that brings us to a supplement that was really popular when i was first getting into fitness you remember this back in the 2000s like the tribulus terrestris um used to just be tribulus at the time and there was all different types of supplements that had this um, was all the hype, okay? And this was, again, related to the aphrodisiac properties um, leading to suspicion that there was going to be a big effect on testosterone. So this was heavily promoted to bodybuilders and people getting into the gym. Don't think I actually ever ended up taking it, but, you know, it was on the radar. Um, but unfortunately, there's been no real evidence to demonstrate that it has a great effect on testosterone or any significant effect on testosterone levels. So um it's just on this, right? This is also something that people just don't like to admit. But basically back in the 90s and 2000s, there was so much doping going on yeah. in terms of just supplements. <laughs> like people would literally be like, oh, I'm going to release this supplement. And in that first batch, I'm going to put in something like fucking D-ball, right? <laughs> so everyone's like, they take that first batch. Like, oh my God, this is phenomenal. I'm getting great results with this. You know, I'm seeing great results in the gym, blah, blah, blah. 
And then from every batch onwards, they just didn't put any of those extra drugs in it. Right? And then people so, take more to try to get the original. They're like, response. oh, I remember my first cycle of this. It was phenomenal. So they just chase that kind of like addiction. This is basically what they do as well in like you know, the Mexican drug cartels. They put some fentanyl in with whatever drug to hopefully get you a little bit more like addicted to that other drug. They're like, oh, I need to get, I need to take more of that drug because the first time I took it, like it had this phenomenal effect, blah, blah, blah. Right. But that used to go on all the time. Now, some of it was like under the radar. The company didn't get caught, but everyone knew what was happening. They're like, you know, every time you come out with this new pre-workout, everyone's like, this is phenomenal. Like, I remember taking pre-workouts. I mean, like, this is the best pump I've ever got in my life. Like, especially those little, like, sample packets. You're like, this is the best fucking pump I've ever got in my life. And then you go out and buy the actual supplement, and you're like, this is not the same, right? So was I doping? Like, probably. You know, you just don't know because you were just getting these fucking samples, and they were fucking putting whatever they were thinking of putting them in with them. Um, now, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you view this, because uh, I should say some of the stuff, they, they weren't even illegal. They were just using stuff like pro hormones, right? Um, which weren't illegal at the time. So depending on how you look at it, nowadays, that stuff doesn't usually go on. There's a lot more stringent uh, regulations around uh, supplements and whatever else. But it used to go on. So stuff when we were growing up, people were like, oh, Tribulus is fantastic. Like, they were probably just on drugs. They just didn't know it. Yeah, this is all. This is also the argument that I often would would raise to someone who's like an extreme libertarian that's just against regulation of all these things. Like, you get a seventeen year old boy that that can't see more than two years into the future and just wants to get jacked. You'd give him a supplement that's going to get him jacked. He'll take anything. Okay, so I don't trust. I don't trust my younger self to make those decisions for me. So some sort of regulation here is important, and supplements are much more regulated these days. There's actually um, a much more strict regulation now. It's still nowhere near the level of pharmaceutical drugs, and especially in terms of like research quality. As I said, I I don't like reading about supplements, especially the kind of herbal supplements, because. Just the quality evidence is just so terrible. It just annoys me. So anyway, that's Tribulus. The next one is another one that's been more popular uh, recently, probably because Andrew Huberman discussed it, and that's Tonkat Ali. Um, this kind of fits into the meh rating as well, I think, for us. You know, there's some slight increase in testosterone observed uh, here, and this is likely related to reduced sex hormone binding globulin. Okay, so as we said, if you've got a lower level of a binding protein, this can free up more uh, free testosterone uh, to potentially um, have positive effects. Okay, so and there are potentially other effects as well yeah. that Dr. Ali is working through. It's not just all SHBG, but it is one of those ones that I would firmly put in the meh category. Like some individuals, if you are someone that has low testosterone, you might see a benefit from taking it. But if you're in the normal range, or especially if you're in the kind of mid range, it's not like it's going to boost your testosterone from 500 to 1000. And even if it did, there's probably going to be some negative feedback as a result of that. So this is why very often uh, with a lot of these testosterone boosting supplements, people recommend like cycling them, like take them for four weeks or whatever, and then go off them for four weeks. And like, that's all fine and well, but you know damn well that no one's doing that. <laughs> <laughs> when you tell a 17 year old, oh, you have to cycle this or you're going to get some testosterone suppression, they're going to take that first four weeks and they're going to go, oh, actually, I saw a benefit that I felt like I was, you know, my libido, my libido was up. I felt like I was getting better results in the gym. I felt more energized. They're just going to keep taking it. They're just going to keep taking it until they're like, oh, and more like, of it, more of it, probably, you know. So if there is any kind of like negative feedback, suppressive kind of effects from 
taking it for a longer period of time, people are just not going to see that because they're just going to keep, well, they actually are going to see that because they're just going to keep taking it. Yeah. And then the final one is um, Rashwagandha, which we discussed previously in relation to uh, sleep and stress and sort of similar story, really. There's uh, maybe some effect that there's an increase in testosterone here. Um, there's, there is interest related to like body composition, gym performance, these types of things. Again, not something that I'm all that interested in really. The the kind of general theme is that throughout these um, different supplements, where there is an increase in testosterone, it's, you know, there's an increase seen, but it's not like it's taking you from the bottom to the top of the normal range. It's not like it's taking you beyond the top of the normal range. Um, you know, so you're talking about small increases. Sometimes you see, you know, 10 to 30% and 30% sounds like a lot, but if you're starting at, you know, let's say 300, let's say you're at the bottom of the normal range, you're more or less fine, but you're like, I want to get this up a bit. Then you're going to go from 300 to 400 or so. Okay. It's yeah, it's, it's a significant change, but whether it's going to actually be significant clinically in terms of anything you'd notice, that's really difficult to say. Um, and also because of the issues I mentioned in terms of diurnal variation, I'd just be really skeptical of these studies that report 30% changes, you know, because we'd seem greater than that in terms of changes throughout the day. If someone had a level of three to 400, like you could easily see that as a result of just measuring it at a different time of day. So um, that's something I'd pay attention to as well. And that's something I think for the consumer or user or listener here to be aware of too, is that if you are going to go and test your testosterone and then you're going to retest it later on a few months down the line, at least try to replicate the same time of day or more or less the same conditions, you know, um, that you've slept the same, that, you know, you're, you have or haven't eaten before, etc. because all these things can have effects. And that's, you know, I suppose one of the downsides of the way that we measure hormones and things is that you can't just take a blood test and get a snapshot of what's my testosterone been like over 24 hours, let's say. You know, one example of where we do get a bit of a better insight would be something like HbA1c with glucose. So you don't have to do a continuous glucose monitor to know what your average glucose might have been like over the past few months because we're assessing the amount of glucose that's been attached to those red blood cells. But again, you've got other variables like what's the turnover of red blood cells been like? So this is one of the limits, I suppose, to our current state of medical testing. I'm not able to take a blood test from you, Patty, and say, right, here's your testosterone graph from the last three weeks. Okay, it'd be great if we could do that, but it's just not possible at the moment. So as a result, you have to try to standardize these variables if you are going to test. Yeah, 100%. Um, so anyway, that was ashwagandha as well, meh, to a maybe slight increase. Other ones that also are kind of in there uh, is methane, D-I-M, DIM. Um, and that can reduce estrogen, as we were talking about before. There is this kind of negative feedback by having too or from having too much estrogen or from having some estrogen. Um, and thus, if you can lower estrogen levels, you might get some negative or a reduction in the negative feedback. Um, and as a result, you would expect to see an increase in testosterone levels. However, again, that's just assuming that your estrogen levels are providing a significant negative feedback and also we have to remember that estrogen is actually beneficial or rather it can be beneficial in normal levels. So we don't want to just completely obliterate our estrogen in the hope that we'll get higher testosterone. So the DIM, uh, you know, dienylmethane, it kind of gets a meh from me. Like there's definitely some more 
like mechanistically, I'm like, there's a little bit more behind it that I could be like, okay, because it does seem to, in, like for some people, for well, for a lot of people, it does seem to modulate estrogen levels. That's, you know, seems to be the case. Um, but is it going to lead to increased testosterone? Mm, meh. Absolutely. And then uh, final one, DHEA. What do you think? Any good? Uh, well, again, we talked about it earlier on. DHEA is in that pathway. It's in the pathway of testosterone synthesis. So you are providing a precursor. And as a result, you would expect to produce more testosterone, right? And that does seem to be the case, right? It does seem to increase testosterone levels, right? Especially if DHEA levels are low, right? Um, it does seem to be the case. It seems to be the case, especially for women, because, you know, maybe they make more testosterone from the adrenals rather than the way um, men make it. And DHEA might play a bigger role then as a result of that. But with all that in mind, it's probably also increasing estrogen. It's probably also increasing all these other hormones uh, in that kind of cascade. And even with that said, having like providing more DHEA doesn't necessarily just increase like arbitrarily testosterone levels, it might play a role. It might uh, increase them slightly. Is it significant? No. Now, DHEA is also in some countries banned. It is technically, I suppose, a hormone. So in a lot of countries, it is banned. You can't get it. Um, but I would give this just above meh. Like it seems to, for a lot of people, increase testosterone levels. But it kind of only really increases them in that kind of meh level. It's like, oh, you got an extra 100 nanograms per deciliter is that in any way relevant is it in any way significant is that going to lead to more muscle building is it going to lead to any actual like clinical outcomes or effects that you can measure or see other than just increasing your testosterone meh yep and that's pretty much it i think i think that's everything you could potentially do so in in summary you know there are potential vitamin and mineral corrections that you may wish to make some of these supplements you may wish to trial if you're adventurous to see if there's any effect um it's probably not an area of supplementation we're all that enthusiastic about and one that we're not recommending all that much generally i think that the bottlenecks for people having the effects of high testosterone like having more energy, you know, feeling more rested, feeling more vigorous and getting better results in the gym, come down to other lifestyle behaviors that people could more easily get control over. Okay. So if you're not sleeping enough and your energy levels are low, that's a really easy thing to improve rather than trying to play around with hormone levels with suspect benefits. So uh, yeah, that's the, the end, I think. Anything else to add? Well, I, the only thing I would add further to this is there probably are more supplements that negatively affect testosterone than there are supplements that positively affect testosterone. So this again, comes down to that whole premise. When we talk about supplements, like there's no just one-to-one -one effect one, like, Oh, I modulate this uh, pathway and I get this specific effect. And that's all. That's the only thing that happens very often. There's side effects off target effects. And this is the case with a variety of supplements they serve to do stuff like increase estrogen levels or you know i don't know increase sex hormone binding globulin or do whatever so it's not a case that all these other interventions are just completely innocuous they don't affect other systems a lot of times you take a different supplement 
and it actually has the effect of reducing your testosterone, right? So again, this is why it is important to not just look at what you can add in, but also look at your overall lifestyle and what you're currently doing. Like if you're taking this like fucking cupboard full of supplements and you've not looked into the other kind of off-target effects of them, like whether they, you know, like you might be like, oh, well, I actually have low testosterone symptoms. And then you're also taking something that potentially interacts with the, you know, testosterone system, I suppose, then you need to assess what you're currently doing, right? Because there is generally no biological free lunch. Like there's going to be off-target effects. There's going to be other effects, side effects, whatever you want to call them. It's not just, oh, I took this one thing and it only worked on this one system. It's just not really the way the body works. Nope. And uh, with that said, that concludes this podcast. And if you'd like help with your goals, training or nutrition, et cetera, we do have coaching spaces available. So we'd be happy to work with you. You can put your information into the form if you click it below and we'll get back to you to discuss the coaching process further. If you're interested in nutrition supplements, etc., then you might be interested in getting certified with us as a nutritionist. We have a nutrition course that you can subscribe to if you click the link below and get more information. We also pull out lots of free information. That includes our Instagram at Triage Method, YouTube at Triage Method, where we'll be posting more content this year. So make sure you're subscribed and also our uh, free newsletter that comes out weekly. Okay, so make sure you subscribe to that. That'll give you a roundup of all of the content we've produced on other platforms. If you're not, you know, live on Instagram throughout the week or you're not keeping up on YouTube, just subscribe to the newsletter and you'd be able to keep up with everything else, okay? We also put exclusive content into the newsletter that doesn't end up elsewhere. We also have content on the website at triagemethod.com, including the pillars or foundations articles that we mentioned previously in this podcast. The one at the moment that is that has just gone up is the nutrition one. And the next one will be sleep, where we'll be discussing in depth sleep physiology and all of the things that you can do to improve your sleep hygiene, sleep practices, and thus sleep quality and quantity. And I think that's pretty much it. If you enjoy the podcast, make sure to leave a rating and review or share it with a friend, share it on your Instagram story, share it in the family group chat, et cetera. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Enjoy.